pray together. Our gracious God, as we open your word together, will you grant to us your Spirit's help to understand what we, what we read and hear, to believe it as truly the word of God, the word of the living Christ, that you will impress these truths upon our hearts and minds so that we might be sanctified in the truth, that by your Spirit's help we will hide these very words in our hearts so we might not sin against you, that we can encourage one another and exhort one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Grant to us an understanding of the full counsel of your Word, that we would understand not only the simple truths of the Gospel, but the full range of your revelation to men. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. As you take your seat, will you turn with me to Psalm number 109? Psalm number 109. Over the next several weeks, I plan to to explore a selection of psalms, and in particular, I want to proclaim the word of Christ through what is known, what are known as imprecatory psalms. Maybe you're familiar with that term, maybe you are not, but imprecatory means these are psalms of cursing. These are psalms of condemnation. These are songs that psalms that describe a prayer for calamity or tragedy or even destruction to fall upon an enemy. And as I've uh, my my practice has been between uh, books that we're doing an exposition on. We finished Colossians, and we'll be going to Judges next. And typically between books, I'll, I'll break out and do a few psalms. I think it's good for us to maintain a, a balanced diet, and the psalms take us across the covenantal spectrum, going back in time redemptively and looking forward to the consummation of all things in Christ. And, and as I prayed and thought about which psalms to do, there's 150 from which to choose, I thought, you know, in light of everything that's going on in our world, as we see, uh, uh, even in the West, we've, we've always thought or often thought that persecution is something that's in remote places. It's in dark places and other side, on the other side of the world. As we see persecution coming to our own doorstep and to our near neighbors, how do we think about that? Has God equipped his church to pray for such situations? Are we limited in how we pray? Are we to pray only in a very narrow sense, for the repentance of our adversaries? Or is there more in our arsenal, so to speak, from which we may pray? And the answer from the Word of God, from the Word of God is that we have much at our disposal with respect to prayer. And when we, when we read the Psalms, and we should read the Psalms, and we should pray the Psalms, and the Psalms give to us a full range of human emotion, In the Psalms, we find the heights of exaltation and praise, and we find the depths of sorrow and grief and betrayal. We come to Psalms like this. We'll read today Psalm 109, and I will confess from the outset, we're going to read it. We're not going to spend a lot of time uh, with an exposition of the particular text. We'll get more to that next week. This is going to be an overview, uh, basically asking the question, how do we even look at these Psalms? How do we approach a Psalm of imprecation? So let's hear the word of God, and we'll, we'll dive in. Psalm number 109, the original, this is the inspired title given to us from the Holy Spirit, to the choir master, a psalm of David. 
Be not silent, O God of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with swords of hate, with words of hate, and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I have given myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness. He pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You know, we have these... We have 150 psalms that God has given as a gift to his people. This is a prayer book, and it ought to be something that we, as we exercise ourselves in prayer, we ought to turn to the psalms as a guide. I believe that when, when, the, when the scriptures tell us that sometimes the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, the Spirit uses means, and one of the means that he has given to us is the psalms. Have you ever had the situation where your, your heart is so crushed in one way or another, you don't even have the words to speak? And you can turn to the Psalms and pray the word of Christ to God, an inspired psalm where you don't have the words, and God has gifted you with words to pray. But as you have prayed the Psalms, have you ever paused over words like these? This is from Psalm 18, verse 20. 
Have you ever paused when, you, when you're praying and, and you read something like this? The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now, who wants to testify this morning that you're perfectly comfortable praying that prayer? As your own. Yeah, me, me neither. But now, this, was, this hymn, or this psalm, is ascribed to King David. Do you think David, according to his humanity... Even before Bathsheba prayed this with a straight face, as if this were his and his words alone. I don't think so. So how do we understand such a prayer then? How do we understand this? And then as we read through the Psalms, in in your private devotions or in your family worship, what do you do when you come across language like this from Psalm 58? Smash their teeth in their mouths. Or in Psalm 137, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Now, I mean, let's be honest. That that kind of language will make us a bit uncomfortable, won't it? On on the one hand, to pray, Lord, I stand here in my righteousness. And on the other hand, knock the teeth out of my enemies' mouths. How do we reconcile prayers like that with the statement from our Lord that says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do we reconcile that? And we can't reconcile it by merely saying, well, this is Old Covenant versus New Covenant. This is the left-hand side of the Bible versus the right-hand side of the Bible. Because in the left-hand side of the Bible, in Exodus 23, we read this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you bring it back to him. Or in Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Do you see the tension? How do we we reconcile this? And we start with the premise, of course, that that the Scriptures never contradict. There's not one verse in the Bible that contradicts another verse. And the imprecatory Psalms pose somewhat of a dilemma and, and often have been a source of, I mean, let's admit it, embarrassment for Christians. We read things like this, like this in the Bible. Even our own, the critics of the gospel, the critics of Christ, the critics of his church, present things like this and say, see, this is the kind of God that you worship. How can you worship such a God who would say, smash little ones against rocks? I mean, how, how does that make any sense? How is that loving? And some have argued on that basis against divine inspiration. This is kind of classic liberalism that has happened throughout the ages where people just say, well, you know, here's the solution. That's not the word of God. God didn't really say that. We can pick and choose. So they argue against divine inspiration. They say this simply isn't God's word. It's only written by men. Others have said that it is the word of God, but it's given to us as a negative example. It's given us as an example of how not to pray. So, for example, they will point to things like 1 Corinthians 10. It says, now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And Paul, of course, is, is pointing back to the wilderness wanderings and said that was written down as an example for us of what not to do. Well, is that, is that the case with the Psalms, with these imprecatory Psalms? Are these examples of how not to pray? No, that's not the answer either. 
And we can say that because we know from the authority of the Scripture that those examples in the wilderness were told at that time, those were negative examples, and the New Testament confirms those are negative examples. We're nowhere told in the Scriptures that the the so-called imprecatory psalms are merely negative examples. So how do we reconcile these kinds of things? Is this psalm an example, the psalm that we read today in Psalm 109, when in verse 10, for example, may his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. Is that an example of perhaps man's sinful nature getting, exam- uh, getting the better of him. That's the other explanation. That these are, these are inspired, but it also includes, because, bless his heart, David is just like us. He was a man of like passions, and even though he was a man near to God's own heart, there were times when just in an outburst of his own remaining sin, he would say such things and cry out for personal vengeance. Is that what we're dealing with? No. In fact, our Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul quote extensively from psalms that we would call imprecatory, psalms like Psalm 69 that says this, let their own table before them become a snare. When they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. We can't say that's a that's just an example of man's sinful nature because Christ and the apostles quote from that very psalm. You probably recognize, as I read from Psalm 109, this is the, this is the psalm from which Peter quotes in Acts chapter 1. When the 11 disciples gather together and Peter stands up and says, we have instruction here. Let another take his office, meaning the office that Judas, by his betrayal, had vacated. So the apostles were quoting these texts. Still others utilize a a sort of a false division between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and say that these imprecatory psalms were legitimate for God's Old Covenant people. They were in the inspired Word of God for the Old Covenant saints, but not for the New Covenant saints. It was appropriate, they would say, for David to pray this, but not for us. So, for example, one kind of a mainstream apologetics website, I I found this this last week, said this, the imprecations of the psalmist stand in agreement with the judgment of God upon evildoers. But when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he is speaking of what we as Christians are supposed to do. The psalmist spoke of God's righteous judgment in the Old Testament context. But in the New Testament context, it is not the time of God's judgment. Instead, it is the time of redemption, and in that redemption, we are to love our enemies. But you see, there's an artificial wedge here between, within the Word of God, between the Old Covenant and the New The Bible doesn't tell us to put that wedge there. It doesn't tell us to to rip asunder God's word. This creates a false dichotomy between God's love and God's judgment. It actually doesn't just split God's word. It splits God. Say God is on, he used to be this angry God, a God of judgment and wrath. And now he's a God of mercy and gentleness and kindness. But again, it's very interesting. This same website makes a list of all the imprecatory prayers, but it omits Psalms 69 and 109 from their list of imprecatory prayers. 
kind of interesting because those are some of the strongest of the imprecatory prayers, and it's ones from which the apostles quote frequently, and the Lord himself quotes. So I wonder if that's the reason they were omitted, because it sort of destroys the argument. But we, we, we conclude that not only are these imprecatory psalms, again, these are psalms in which God's people pray for the destruction of their enemies. Not only are they genuinely the word of God, but they are useful for us today. In fact, they are necessary for us today. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for our use. Never is there a contradiction in the word of God. So how is it? How do we answer these, these what feels to us like a tension between Jesus' commands to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and for the clear curses that are prayed for in the Psalter? Here's the answer, historically and biblically. In order to understand the imprecatory prayers recorded in the Psalms, we must hear in them the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ, resting with certainty that his prayers are always answered by our Father in heaven. In other words, when we read all of the Psalms, including the imprecatory Psalms, what we ought to hear is Christ speaking in the first person. This is Christ speaking in the first person. I'm going to explain this. I'm going to show you. It's kind of a long introduction here, but we're going to, under four headings. I'm going to go fairly, fairly quickly. The first is the New Testament witness of Christ speaking the words of the Psalms. Let's look to the New Testament. This is the infallible rule of interpretation is the Scripture interprets the Scripture, right? So how do we interpret these Psalms? We look to those who were closest to Christ, who traveled with him, were taught by him, instructed by him, ate with him for three years. How did they understand these psalms? How did they quote them? How did they use them? We're not left with, with trying to make up our own tools of hermeneutics or our own tools of interpretation. The apostles provide that for us. I'm indebted to a, a book, a work by a man named Jim Adams. He's a Reformed Baptist pastor out in Arizona. He's written a book, and I would commend it to you if you want more study on this, this subject of imprecatory psalms. It's called War Psalms of the Prince of Peace. War Psalms of the Prince of Peace, subtitled Lessons from the Imprecatory Psalms. And um, I've been, been helped by him by some of the scriptural references and even a couple of quotes from commentaries that have been uh, helpful. The New Testament writers and the apostles ascribed to Christ the words of the Psalms. In other words, they didn't merely record occasions when Jesus quoted from the Psalms. Christ Jesus used the words of the Psalms as his own words, and the apostles recognized this fact and quoted from the Psalms with that fact already established in their mind. This was their method of interpreting the Psalms, was assuming these were the words of Christ. So here's a couple of examples. In Hebrews chapter 2, this is it, beginning in verse 11, we read this, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. See what's happening here? The apostle to the Hebrews He's quoting here from Psalm 22, but he's putting those words in the mouth of Christ. Now, you can search through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the gospel accounts, and you won't find a single time when Jesus actually said these words. Now, what are they doing? 
under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the apostles are saying Christ was speaking in the psalm all along. It came through the mouth of David, but it was Christ who was speaking. David was speaking prophetically. Now, I'll give you another example. In the Septuagint translation, Septuagint is the, is the old Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Then that was then translated from that Greek to, to English. But in Psalm 39, listen to this. It's actually Psalm 40 in our English Bibles. It was Psalm 39 in the Hebrew Bible. This is ascribed to David. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou didst not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the volume of the book it is written concerning me, I desire to do thy will, O God. Now, in, Psalm, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 5, once again, the apostle puts those words into the mouth of Christ. And again, you won't find anywhere in the Gospels where Christ said those words, and yet the apostle said, this is the voice of Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to begin in verse 4. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he, this is Christ, added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Saints, do you hear this? This is Christ speaking in the first person in the Psalms. This is Christ speaking directly in the Psalms. Through the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the apostle to the Hebrews, attributes the words of the Psalms to Christ. Again, nowhere in the Gospels is it recorded that Christ said that, and yet the apostles recognized when they read the Psalms, they pulled out the scrolls, they read the Psalms, what they heard was the voice of their Savior. That's how they understood them. It was not merely David the man who spoke, but Christ speaking prophetically through David and through the other writers of the Psalms. So we have a New Testament witness to this fact. We also have, in the New Testament, apostolic use of prayers of imprecation. So, again, thinking through this, this, this idea that, well, this is, this is an, a relic, maybe, from the Old Covenant. This is sort of the leftover bad habits of Old Testament saints that still are in the Psalms, but we as Christians, really, we shouldn't pray such, such things. There was a problem there because we find this frequently in the New Testament. I'll give you some examples. In Galatians chapter 1, you know the setting for Galatians, right? Paul finds out that the circumcision party has come in, and they're instructing these saints in, in Galatia that in order to be a Christian, you have to first be a Jew, which means you have to be circumcised and keep the law and be a Christian. And Paul minces no words. It's probably some of the strongest language we find in any of the epistles. He says, but if even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You know what that means, right? Let him be damned to hell. Strong language, isn't it? It's not a friendly letter, is it? 
as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So Paul repeats it, just in case they thought, this is a misprint, Paul, Paul misspoke. No, this is clear. I'm going to say it twice. Paul closes his benediction to his first epistle to the Corinthian church. He says this, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord comes, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. So we have the Apostle Paul making these same kinds of of imprecatory requests of God. This is a prayer. When he says to the Galatian church, let him be accursed, this is a prayer. Paul can't condemn anyone to hell. Paul can't curse anyone. He's saying, God, will you do this? This is how serious Paul was and how, how serious he saw the threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, if anyone comes and pretends to preach another gospel, which is no gospel at all, let God judge them for that. Turn with me over to the book of, of the Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, we're going to do just a brief tour through a couple of passages here. We find also recorded for us, again, in the New Testament, the prayers of the risen saints, the, sa- the souls of the saints in heaven, these disembodied saints praying prayers of imprecation. In heaven. So just in case we think, well, this is just a relic, this is, this is still the vestiges of our sinful nature. They're in heaven, glorified with Christ. They're in, literally beholding the face of Jesus, and they're praying imprecatory prayers. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. So here's the picture of the throne room, and, and, and John and his vision is weeping because no one was found worthy to open this scroll. And verse, well, Let's go back up to verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's an image of the Holy Spirit. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Keep that in your mind. Bookmark that mentally. These golden bowls full of incense are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here is a a, a prayer of God's people here. Now turn over to to chapter 6. Look down to verse 9. When he, this is an angel, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Glorified saints in heaven saying, How long, O sovereign God, until you exercise judgment on our enemies? This isn't sin speaking here. This is a righteous cry of glorified saints. Then, turn over to Revelation chapter 11. Look at 
Verse 15, chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. They're praising God for his wrath and his judgment of their enemies. One more, Revelation chapter 19. And there are other examples in the book of the Revelation, actually many. I'm just pointing out a few. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Here the saints in heaven are praising God for his judgment on their enemies. So we cannot so easily dismiss these imprecatory psalms and say, well, this is just a relic of the Old Covenant. That's not an option for us, because even in the New Testament, even in heaven itself, are those praying just these sorts of things. Now, I want to point in the third place to the witness of church history. We have, we have the, the apostolic use of these imprecatory psalms and seeing the voice of Christ in all of the psalms. We have a New Testament witness that, that the New Testament itself offers up imprecatory prayers. And also, and this is not as decisive because it's not infallible, but it is a compelling evidence, it is compelling testimony from the history of the church of Jesus Christ. The witness of the church history is abundantly clear. From the time of Christ to his apostles and through the early history of the church, the people of God understood the Psalms to be the very voice of Christ. They, as they read the Psalms, they recognized this is our Savior speaking and praying himself in the first person. Now that conviction has faded. In fact, it almost seems foreign now because both our flesh and our culture conspire against us. Because let's face it, now when we open the, our Bibles, we are more likely to think, how does this apply to me? Because the whole thing's about me, right? No, I'm wrong about that. It's about you, right? No, that, that, that's, that's our default, right? But our fathers in the faith didn't see it that way. Our, again, our culture and our own flesh conspire against us in this regard. Christ is the subject and the object of all of the scriptures. He's the focal point of redemptive history. It is his voice that we see in the Psalms. In the early, uh, an early 19th century commentary makes this observation. He's, this is in his introduction to the commentary. Listen to this. He says, The primitive fathers 
are unexceptionable witnesses to us of this matter of fact, meaning that Christ is the person speaking in the Psalms. That such a method of expounding the Psalms, built upon the practice of the apostles in their writings and preachings, did universally prevail in the church from the beginning. They who have ever looked into St. Augustine know that he pursues this plan invariably, treating of the Psalms as proceeding from the mouth of Christ, or of the church, or of both considered as one mystical person. They, they viewed the church as the body, Christ as the head. The same is true of Jerome, Ambrose, Amobius, Cassidori, Hilary, and Prosper. But what is very observable, Tertullian, who flourished at the beginning of the 3rd century, mentions it as if it were then an allowed point in the church that almost all the psalms are spoken in the person of Christ, being addressed by the Son to the Father, that is, by Christ to God. This was the near-universal testimony of the early church. Now again, church history isn't infallible, but it does give us a credible and useful testimony that we ought to hear the psalms in the same way. We ought to discover in them, this is the voice of our Savior speaking, and he is praying to his Father. Now, in the last place, I want to consider this. Some will object and say that it cannot be Christ speaking because in many of the Psalms, David or any of the other writers express their own suffering for sin. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with something like Psalm 69, verse 9, or no, Psalm 69. Turn with me there. Psalm 69. This is one of the other imprecatory psalms. So we're going to test our theory. We're going to test this, this hermeneutical principle that Christ is the voice speaking here. And I think as, you, as we read through the first four verses, you'll think, oh yeah, that sounds right, no problem. Then we get to verse 5, you may say, uh-oh, the theory doesn't fit. To the choir master, according to lilies of David, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, whose attack, those who attack me with lies. What did I, what I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. So again, the first four verses, first four verses you may think, well, I, can see, I can see Christ saying that. You get to the fifth verse. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Surely that can't be the voice of Christ, can it? Actually, it is. It is. We know this psalm is frequently quoted in the New Testament. And the words are ascribed to Christ for his, as his words. So, for example, if you look down at verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That's the infallible, spirit-inspired testimony of the New Testament saying, these are the words of Christ. So do we get our black sharpie and cross out verse 5? No. No, that's not the answer. How do we understand such a statement then? 
And here's the answer. Jesus identifies so very closely with those for whom he died that he takes on those words as his own. The sinless, spotless lamb of God confesses your sin and mine. So rather than this being a hindrance, this is a blessing. This is the blessing of knowing that Christ is the one who speaks these words. Rather than being a hindrance to us understanding the Psalms as the voice of Christ, we actually may embrace the unspeakable blessing of hearing our perfect, sinless, spotless Savior confessing the sins of his people as if they were his sins, as if he himself had committed them. Does that seem like a stretch to you? Does it seem like a stretch? That Jesus would utter words of contrition and remorse over sin? Consider the words of the apostles in the New Testament, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Brothers and sisters, when you read the Psalms, the words that we just read, confessing folly, or when you read in Psalm 73, for example, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Will you believe that your perfect high priest... Has, has taken that sin upon himself to such a wholesale degree that he can even pray that as a prayer on your behalf. He has confessed it as if it were his own. In an early 20th century commentary, this is um, E.C. Olson, says, I am particularly impressed with the fifth verse of this 69th Psalm, where the Lord said, O oh God, Thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. For 2,000 years, no man who has had any respect for his intellect has dared charge our Lord Jesus with sin. We, we know that. Our Lord has never sinned. He is our perfect high priest. He is tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. Not, not one spot, not one thought, word, or deed had ever was ever sinful. But he goes on, some might ask, what do you mean when you say our Lord is the speaker in this verse? Just this, the fact of Calvary is not a sham or a mirage. It is an actual fact. Christ making atonement for sin was a reality. The New Testament declares that he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As Christ restored that which he took not away, that is, restored to us a righteousness which we never had, so Christ had to take your sins and mine, your foolishness and mine. These sins become such an integral part of him that he called them my sins and my foolishness. Our Lord was the substitute for the sinner. He had to take the sinner's place, and in so doing, he took upon himself all the sinner's sin. In the chapter 53rd of Isaiah, it is written, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
the iniquity of us all was laid upon Christ. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Can you fathom that? When you do, you will understand the mystery of the gospel. It may be hard for us at first blush to accept that Christ has said this. But if we understand, he did far more than say it. He became sin for us. He became the curse on the tree for us. This is is, is unfathomable, isn't it? That he would love to that degree. That he would sacrifice to that degree. May God the Holy Spirit give us understanding of the mystery of this gospel. Do, Do you yourself know this? Do you know this blessing? Do you, do you know that, 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 that true reality that your sins have been wiped away? Not because they just were just wiped off and discarded, washed off down the gutter. No, they were placed upon his head. We saw this in Colossians, didn't we? That certificate of debt that was ours, it was yours, it was mine, was nailed to the cross. Christ paid it in full. He's so identified with you and me in Christ that he took those upon himself and even confessing them as his own sin. Will you believe today that you are a mighty sinner but that Christ is a mightier Savior? The Scriptures plainly teach that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. Beloved, God has promised to vindicate himself against the wicked. And his people should pray according to his revealed covenant. Use the imprecatory psalms as model prayers. Now, we're going to spend some time over the next few weeks working out what that looks like. Because there are some cautions, there are some caveats. But think about this. We sing this, and I ask ask our, our music team to change the song, our last song that we sang today rather than what was in our schedule. So uh, this, this, the hymn that we sang, the last one, is so rich. Oh, Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed, now there's no load for me. Death and the curse were in our cup. Oh, Christ was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love, drank it up. Thou blessings draught for me. Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on me. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. Words of Ann Cousin, hymn writer. We may and we ought to pray these imprecatory psalms with a clear conscience and with praise towards God. because We dare not pray them as personal prayers of vengeance. This is a preview of one of the major caveats. We don't pray them as prayers of vengeance. If someone steals from you, they slander you, they betray you, they cause you harm in some way, that's not the time to open your Bible and use an imprecatory psalm like your own personal voodoo doll to bring curses upon your personal enemy. That's not how it works. No, when we understand the imprecatory psalms correctly, they help us speak as the body of Christ, recognizing his rightful place as our head. He is our great high priest who speaks for us. He intercedes for us. 
And we pray confidently knowing that his prayers are always answered perfectly and completely. Our Savior is going to return and avenge all of his enemies. Not one who raises his fist against God and his church will stand in the day of judgment. Unless that man, unless that woman repents and turns to Christ, then the prayer that our Savior prays for their judgment will fully and justly be answered. There's a huge benefit for us to pray. One of the the immediate benefits is, and we can get kind of lulled into this sort of functional humanism, that everything is just physical. And we look at the politics, we look at the economics, we look at the, the, the evil corporations and all this kind of stuff, and we think, well, this is just, we think like humanists. We think, well, these are, these are misguided people. Um, these are people who are just motivated by greed or money. Or, and, and we forget that, no, there are actual enemies. There is actual evil present in the world against which the people of God ought to pray. To, 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 to read the imprecatory psalms, to pray the imprecatory psalms, is to force us to come to reality, to face the reality that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against unseen powers. The imprecatory psalms force us to remember there is an enemy. It's not our neighbor. It's not even our government. But there is an enemy who animates those who do violence against the church of Jesus Christ. There's another benefit to our souls when we pray these imprecatory prayers. See, there's a, there's a creeping influence in, in our modern age to see Jesus in only a one-dimensional way. We see Jesus only as Jesus meek and mild, Jesus gentle and lowly. And maybe we don't want to admit it, but that sort of teaching affects us. It affects our thinking. And, and, and we sometimes, we wouldn't actually say this, but we're sort of influenced by this idea that God the Father is this vengeful, wrathful, angry God. Oh, but Jesus, the Son, the second generation, I mean, he's the kind one, he's the gentle one, he's the meek and lowly one. Jesus is so full of love and mercy that he would never hurt anyone. I mean, you've heard that. You've heard those kinds of sentiments. But praying the imprecatory prayers, understanding them as the very voice of Christ, we're forced to embrace that Christ is praying for the destruction of his enemies. This isn't just God the Father. And Jesus is sort of standing back, oh, Dad, don't do that. It's almost like Jonathan with his father Saul. Oh, don't shed innocent blood. Please don't shed innocent blood. But that's not the reality. That's not the Christ that's given to us in the scriptures, is it? Christ himself is praying for the destruction of his enemies. This gentle Jesus prays infallibly and unfailingly for the destruction of his enemies. See, listen to to Revelation chapter 19. You don't have to turn there if you don't want, but just just listen to this. In verse 11, Revelation 19, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, 
And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, we ought not dare to think of our Savior in only one dimension and to think of him only as the gentle Savior. He is a conquering king. And praying the imprecatory Psalms causes us not to be able to forget that. This is the king that we worship. This is the king that we serve. Over the next few weeks, I hope to help us work out how we can apply what I'm introducing today. We think about the word of Christ in the Psalms. How do we apply this? How do we think through this? And with particular focus on the imprecatory Psalms. And again, here's the key. In order to understand the imprecatory prayers recorded in the Psalms, we must hear in them the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we rest then in the certainty that his prayers are always answered by our Father in heaven. His prayers are always answered. So keep in mind, as as you perhaps will go and read through some of the Psalms this week, and and thinking about this, I hope, as, as the voice of Christ. Remember, the New Testament bears witness that Christ himself is the one who speaks. When you read through the Psalms, it is Christ's voice that you're reading. The apostles make use of these imprecatory passages. We have the witness of church history reminding and confirming these things for us. And then we receive the blessing. We we understand that the blessing of the gospel, that he who knew no sin became sin, including confessing that sin on our behalf. May we marvel at the mercy of God revealed to us in his son. Let's pray. God, our Father, we pray for the work of your Spirit in us. Lord, will you give us understanding of your word? Will you, will you give us, grant to us the mercy of, of conviction of sin? Grant to us the mercy to see the surpassing glory of Christ our Savior. Will you increase our faith as we meditate upon the work of redemption that he has accomplished for us, taking on all of the sin of those for whom he died. And will you stir up in us an urgency to see this gospel of grace go forth to all the nations so that those who, whom your spirit will soften to hear the word of God will be spared from the eternal wrath of God. May you use your word to stir up in us an increasing hatred of sin, an increasing love and adoration and admiration of our exalted Savior, and an increasing urgency to see the gospel of peace go forth to the nations. Amen.